Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. And on this episode, we're very excited to welcome James Mayall with us, historian, blogger, behind the really awesome blog Parlez-vous American. James has a master's degree in American history and archaeology from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and a master's in public policies from the University of Southern Maine. In 2015, he co-authored The Franco-Americans of Lewis and Auburn. His previous work on Franco-Americans includes research on contemporary Franco-Americans in New England for the Maine State Legislature, and he has taught at college-level classes on Franco-American history at the University of Southern Maine. James, thank you very much for joining us, sir. Thanks, Jess. Happy to be on. All right, this is going to be really fun because I think you bring a very unique perspective to the study of Franco-Americans generally, and that's because of the answer to this question. Where are you actually from? <laughs> so, yeah, I am not from New England originally. I am from Old England. Um, I grew up just outside of uh, London, but I've been living in Maine for about 10 years now. Uh, and my wife and I met over in the UK, and um, I never expected really to be living in Maine or to sort of be acquainted with Franco-American history, um, but here I am. Yeah, no, so how did that happen that you went from London? Is it because of your wife? Is that how you ended up hanging out in Maine? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we met when we were in college over in Scotland, and um, actually she, we had both sort of, she had planned to sort of make her home in the UK and was sort of looking forward to like meeting someone over there and settling down, and then sort of life got in the way and had other plans. We just ended up, uh, she still has family back here, and we ended up uh, moving back to Maine, and now we have three kids here, so... Very cool. Now, where did the interest in Franco-American history and culture come from? Yeah, I mean, I sort of actually, you know, honestly kind of stumbled onto that a little bit by accident. I um, When I first moved here, you know, I was in the job market and I had, you know, I had some background in um, French language and in just sort of general history skills. Um, and, you know, actually a lot of my undergraduate work had been in ancient Roman and Greek history, but not a lot of, not a lot of demand for that in uh, New <laughs> England. My um, first job in Maine was um, working at the University of Southern Maine's um, Franco-American collection as an archivist there. And I sort of had started that job actually primarily with my skills and um, experience as an archivist without and my French language background, but without much of the Franco-American history background. And so I just sort of I learned a lot of what I know now um, just on the job there. It's funny you mentioned you had you know the French language background. Did you find the French language you run into now in Maine to be different than what you had learned coming in? The the language itself is not that different. I think the it took me a little while to get used to to train my ear to get used to the different accent. You know, go different sure. accents all over the world. Just like just like a lot of folks have uh, trouble hearing my accent in English, and uh, <laughs> it takes them a little while to get used to. Yeah, no, it took me a little while to chew my ears in a little bit, and very occasionally there's like a word that I don't recognize um, that's more of a sort of Canadian or New England word, but actually like. Very few sort of actual language things that are that different that I've noticed. We mentioned the blog, mm-hmm. Parlez Vous American. Now, where did the idea to do a blog come from? I ended up starting the blog sort of after I had moved on from, um, so as I said, I sort of worked at the Franco-American collection in um, Lewiston, Maine for um, about four years um, from 2010 through 2014. Um, and then I moved on to doing some other projects and um, working at some other historical societies, that sort of thing. Um, but the blog was kind of my way to, um, especially in my current job, which isn't 
history focused was kind of a way to sort of still do some history research enjoy that kind of stuff I found I was doing it anyway um, and so that was just kind of a way to sort of get some of that out there and um, encourage me to write up what I was reading about and poking about and so all right cool how long have you been doing this blog for then um let's see I think I started it in early 2016 so I guess uh coming up on three years now so Awesome. Now, where do you get the ideas? You post pretty regularly on this blog. Where do you get the idea when you come up with these articles? Often it's just sort of, I mean, so sometimes there are, sometimes there are things that are like in the news or current affairs that sort of triggers something where I'm like, oh, like that reminds me of this that I read about. It often deals with a lot of topics to do with sort of immigration, which is often sort of a, a hot topic right now in sure. politics and in the current affairs. So there's a lot of that that comes along. Often it's just sort of stuff that I stumble along as well. So I, you know, I kind of enjoy, especially more online than in books these days, just because I've got three young kids and it's like hard to find time <laughs> to actually read books in quiet. But, you know, you. I'll be like looking around in the, you know, looking around on the internet and I'll uh, stumble across sort of different stories that are interesting and sort of inspire me to write pieces of them up into a blog. Do you post on a regular schedule or is it kind of like whenever you're done, here comes um, a new post? At one point, I had the idea that it was going to be sort of weekly or every other week, but right now it tends to be sort of whenever I whenever I get the inspiration strikes and then, gotcha. um, you know, so sometimes it is very like week after week and then sometimes it can be like a month or so until I write something up. And the, the biggest challenge is when I find a story and then I find sort of more details I want to confirm about it and, you know, <laughs> you go down the yeah, road right. and you can never finish if you're not careful. So We'll make sure, obviously we have our social media here of the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. We'll be sure to provide a link for anybody uh, who wants to go check out the, your blog. I definitely recommend that they do because it's really interesting. Like you said, you put new stuff very regularly. And uh, where'd you get the name for it, by the way? It's um, a bit of a, um, a kind of ironic nod to this. Um, I'd read a story that um, this was, I think, was someone's account from like actually relatively recently back in the 1960s and they talked about how as a franco-american growing up you know they had somebody they remember as a kid somebody they were speaking french in somewhere in maine and someone was yelling at them that they should be speaking american instead <laughs> uh, which is you know and that obviously doesn't make a lot of sense you know um, awesome. for a few reasons so i sort of took that as a sort of tongue-in-cheek idea of you know if you really want to speak american it's about speaking you know speaking the language of all this different history just out of curiosity, what knowledge, if any at all, did you have on the identity of Franco-Americans before you came to Maine? Was that anything that's even remotely on your radar? Um, not really, no. I mean, it was pretty uh, pretty much zero, I think, before I sort of started some of this work. So I was really sort of like learning a lot of it from scratch. So Sure. Now, where, and where did you start? Because I'm, I'm mentioning uh -huh. this because there's a lot descendants of Franco-Americans, French-Canadians, mm. who themselves are finally getting into their history for the very first time. We're trying to see, we're seeing kind of a resurgence here in Manchester, which I think is super exciting. So I'm curious as to kind of where you went from square one, that we might pass along some of this information. A lot of folks I know sort of get into it through a family angle because they've got sort of some family connections. So folks who are doing like their family tree and that sure. sort of thing. Um, my wife actually does have a little French Canadian um, on her side, um, but that wasn't that actually wasn't my starting point. Um, for me, it was more sort of it was obviously it was sort of through my job um, at this archive, and so some of it was sort of just like picking up different pieces here and there and sort of piecing them together as I was processing some of the archive material. But really it's sort of built up in this, like the history of Lewiston, which was yes. where the archive was. And so it was yeah. kind of like researching the local history of the town and Lewiston is a kind of town. And I suspect, um, you know, somewhere like Manchester is pretty similar where it's hard to tell a history of the city without sort of encountering Franco-Americans and all these different aspects of um, Franco-American life and culture. You mentioned, you talked about Lewiston. What are your projects that you're working on now? 
is the follow 1894 day by day. What is this about? Because I think this is really interesting. Yeah. Um, so this was um, this actually builds on an idea that I had come up with when I was um, when I was for a time director of the Freeport Historical Society in Maine, and I had done something similar with a diary that we had there. Um, but this is a Twitter account, um, and it's taking a more or less every day. Although again, like you know, there are some days where it just feasibly doesn't end up being possible. But nearly every sure. day, um, I post a story from 1894 um, from the French language newspaper in Lewiston, Le Messager. Um, and so I sort of, I spend time going through the microfilm of that and picking out sort of the little local stories that appeared in their pages and sort of try and post a story um, from around, from basically the same day, 125 years ago. Uh, and it's kind of fun because the, I mean, the one of the things that struck me for the inspiration for this, as I said, I sort of I done another project which sort of used somebody's diary from 1924. I think the diary had was great for Twitter because it had sort of lots of one-line entries. But I noticed as I was going through some of these newspapers from this period, they actually have a very similar sort of format. You know, especially the local news section in these, they often have sort of like two or three sentence little um, blurbs that appear in there in the local news section, um, and they really vary all the way from sort of like you know. Yeah, Mr. Gagnon is uh, has just returned from visiting his sister to, you know, there was a murder last night and the police are looking for the suspect, you know, so it's everything <laughs> from like the trivial to the pretty intense. So it's kind of fun. It gives this sort of a different uh, a picture of uh, what life was like in the community. And I think one of the fun things about a paper like Le Messager, because it's a French language paper, is it picks up a lot of the news that from this local community that doesn't get reported in sort of the English language press at the time. Were there many towns in Maine that had French Canadian populations significant enough to have a French newspaper, like a daily French newspaper? Um, not a huge number. Um, I mean, Le Messager was definitely the biggest in Maine and the longest lasting. It ran from like the mid 1880s through to about 1964, something like that, I think. And uh, and it was like a bi-weekly paper, so it wasn't a daily paper. There was gotcha. a weekly, couple of other weekly papers, um, one, in, one in Sanford and one in Biddeford, and they're both called La Justice. And then there were, so I think there were, those three may have been the only three in Maine. There may have been, I mean, there were a couple of like shorter lived papers that sort of, you see that a lot in this period, like, you know, they'll, they'll run for like a year or a couple of months and they just won't have enough of a market and they have to fold. But, um, but yeah, the, there weren't a huge number of communities that, you know, could support this paper. It's kind of remarkable that Le Messager carried on as long as it did in some ways. Sure. Now, why did you pick the year? 1894 specifically is it simply because of the anniversary the 125th yeah i um yeah it's mostly because i mean i wanted to choose something that was um to narrow it down a bit i wanted to choose something that had sort of like a significance to it i didn't really want to do a sort of i've actually been doing some other research from about from that first world war era so that sure. sort of meant that i didn't really want to do 1919 um because it was something that i covered a lot of and i my in my experience i know like the whole paper is mostly just full of news about the war um, of that period. So 1894 felt like kind of a, it's also an interesting period because it's, you know, it's at this, you know, the, the newspaper has been going for about 10 years. The community's um, at sort of, in some ways, sort of the height of its size. Um, but there's still a lot of like, it's a, it's a period that, you know, you don't know a lot about from American history as well. The 1890s as well. It's not quite as well known, perhaps, as like, you know, the Civil War period or sure. that um, First World War era. Gotcha. Now, out of curiosity, what background do you think a reader might want to know going into the study of a day-by-day, -day, 1894? Like, what's the lead-in? What's the mm -hmm. preamble to 1894, Lewiston, Maine? 
Well, I think one of the fun things is that like some of the, a lot of these little stories, I try and choose ones that sort of mostly stand alone, so you don't need a lot of extra background to them, or sort of like knowing who's who or anything like that. Um, so they're self-contained. But um, I think, I mean, I think as I was saying, like one of the interesting things is that you know this is a time where sort of you know French Canadians have been coming to Lewiston since the 1860s, but the the flow really picks up in about the 1880s. And so this is like, you've got a lot of people coming in. Lewiston's really growing very quickly. You know, the population doubles every 10 years or so. The French Canadians by this point probably make up about between a third and like 45% of the town's population, something like that. It eventually reaches about half the city's population around 1900, 1910. So it's well on the way to these Franco-Americans becoming a huge part of the city's population. But yeah, at the same time, it, there's still this a lot of growing pains in the city. And, you know, the a lot of the stuff in the newspaper is sort of very concerned with politics because they're trying to they're trying to get the French Canadians to get their citizenship and to vote, sure. take part in municipal elections. And um, there's this, you know, Lewiston, like a lot of Maine actually at the time, is going from being a very um, sort of, well, Maine was like this for a much longer period than cities like Lewiston, but was very strongly Republican. And um, a lot of the immigrant community, like the Irish and the French Canadians and the Italians, became strongly Democratic voters. Um, and you see this big shift in sort of party politics as well. And so you sort of see a changing of kind of the old guard um, in for some new sets of politicians and new policies and things. So it's a, it's a point at which the city's kind of in this fairly sort of sometimes tumultuous period of change. You mentioned that there was efforts, like deliberate efforts, to get French Canadians registered to vote. Mm -hmm. how, how successful were these efforts and what challenges did those try to get the vote out and face? Yeah, pretty. I mean, it, seemed, it appears to have been pretty successful. Of course, you know, this is a period where only men can vote, so it's sort of restricted right. to that part of the population. Um, but yeah, like one of the founding, you know, pretty early on, one of the founding missions of Le Messager is to sort of tell people about their right to vote, to inform them as voters, and to sort of get them to come out. So they do a couple of things. They sort of offer kind of citizenship classes and English language classes, and they also help to sort of, they offer like clinics to help people fill out their citizenship papers and that sort of thing. Um, and you see those sort of advertised throughout the paper as well. One of the interesting things you see in this period also is sort of the, the way that the, the newspaper and the community is sort of struggling and fighting back against effort. Some of the folks in charge are putting in efforts to actually make it more difficult. So you see there, um, there are some laws passed that mean that, and this happens a couple of different times in Maine, but at one point, the local municipal court could um, issue naturalization. So you could just go down to the city hall uh, and the local judge there could um, swear you in as a citizen. But they pass some laws to make sure that you have to go to the county court. And then at different points, you have to go to the federal court, which in Maine wow. is in Portland. So it's sort of about probably at that time, probably like an hour or two hour trip, something like that. The state of Maine passes a requirement that uh, in order to vote, you have to pass a literacy test. Um, wow. and so you have to be able to read the Constitution in English or you can't vote. Um, and so that's another thing that they sort of have to contend with as well. And you see that the, um, you know, one of the things that you see sort of as time goes on is that a place like Lewiston, the you know, the, the question of the literacy test is particularly interesting because, you know, the local elected officials have so much authority over how... Um, how a lot of these laws are enforced. So eventually in a place like Lewiston, where you have more French Canadians in positions of power, and you know, from about 1910 onwards, nearly every mayor of Lewiston is French Canadian of, 
uh, right through until the like 1990s. Like in those places, the laws aren't so strictly enforced and it's a lot easier for French speakers to register to vote and that sort of thing. But if you look at some of the smaller communities in Maine where a lot of the sort of old blood Yankee folks are still in charge, they in many cases, they sort of really enforce these laws strictly and make it harder for these uh, folks to participate. You mentioned that went through about 1990s that we had a lot of French Canadian descendants kind of running the show at Lewiston. What does Lewiston look like now? Um, I mean, Lewiston is it's actually an interesting city. I mean, I think there's still um, there's a lot of you know it still has a very large Franco-American population. I think it's experiencing a bit of a renaissance in sort of folks rediscovering some of that interest. I mean, I think you see this a lot all over New England that you have sort of a generation probably starting with kind of like the baby boomer and Gen X generations where sort of like that French Canadian history was you know something that people weren't as proud of or they you know they learned from their parents that it wasn't something that they should play up that they should you know try not to emphasize the fact that they were French Canadian because that was something sure. that might be looked down on um, but I think now you're seeing folks of a you know both those folks sort of like rediscovering that history and then folks of a younger generation sort of being pretty interested in that and a resurgence in this interest and in sort of uh, different identities and you know different ethnic history so I think we're seeing a little more of that in places like Lewiston um, the other thing that's kind of interesting about a place uh, about Lewiston in particular become home to a relatively small compared to the French Canadian population, but a sort of small and growing um, population of primarily refugees and asylum seekers from Africa. Right. Um, so some folks from um, Somalia, but also some folks from French speaking parts of Africa, from Burundi and Rwanda, um, some places like that. Um, Benin as well. There's actually been some interesting sort of examples of sort of some of the French Canadian descendants and some of these new African Francophones sort of making connections over this French language and this sort of shared immigration history as well, which is kind of fun. We're a refugee settlement city here in Manchester as well. So we are seeing some of the same kind of thing. It's cool to hear that's also going on mm -hmm. uh, in Lewiston. That's awesome. Uh, one thing I did want to uh, bring up because uh, you had mentioned that, you know, in studying Lewiston, you can't tell the story of Lewiston without talking about the history of French Canadians. And I'm finding you can't tell the history of French Canadians without talking about the church, because mm -hmm. that was a major, major impact, the immigrants, especially when they came in. Was there one central parish in Lewiston or were there many French churches? Because it seemingly that the at least my my experience I've come across so far is the church controlled a whole lot of things obviously they had the whole spiritual life but mm -hmm. a lot of your social life revolved around the church many efforts were controlled by by your local parish priest so i'm kind of curious how it happened up in lewiston yeah a lot of that social life and and is really uh, intertwined with church life i mean i think the you know, like, so in the project that I'm doing with Le Messager, the, the tagline on the newspaper reads uh, religion and nationality. So it's, you know, religion and nationality are like the two things that it's sort of um, promoting. A little after the, I mean, about 1910 or so, the editor of, um, well, 1910 through about 1920, there's a little more tension between the folks editing the paper and the church. Um, and because there's, you know, some right, uh, some criticism of the bishop and that sort of thing. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, the, the paper starts out as being sort of also being a very pro-Catholic paper and talks a lot about that. But then eventually you sort of see this tension between the two different groups in the community with sort of some of the folks who run the newspaper, are kind of the middle class, you know, lawyers and doctors and that sort of thing who have... Uh, sometimes set themselves up as sort of just have different opinions from sort of the church hierarchy. Sure. But Lewis is kind of an interesting case because it is, you know, it's a very, it's got a pretty large um, population and 
at one point had, um, I mean, so you've got Lewiston and the city next to it is Auburn, so it also has a significant Franco-American population. But there are probably something like about half a dozen different French parishes in Lewiston at one point. A lot of them have been consolidated now and some of the church buildings have closed. But one of the interesting things about Lewiston was for a long time there was only one French parish, which was uh, the parish of St. Peter and St. Paul. That was kind of unusual because it was actually run by a monastic order by the Dominican brothers who owned the parish sort of under the diocese, but slightly separately from it. By 1900 or so, the, um, the, the this parish had about 10,000 parishioners in it. So it was pretty enormous. And so the... Yeah, the, so now Lewiston is home to that St. Peter and Paul, the old church was, that was built in the 1870s was taken down in about 1910, and then they eventually replaced it with this large church that's now a basilica. Um, and it's pretty cool if you get a chance to take a look at the pictures of it. It's got some stunning architecture, this basilica. But it is. Uh, but there was a lot of contention about building it, and so there was, um, you know, it took them a long time to raise the money through the Depression and that sort of thing. Um, but part of the problem was that the building fund kept getting divided up, and this was a, a, a sore point in the community because the Bishop of Maine um, kept uh, dividing the parish up. So it was originally this parish of 10,000 and it kept, yeah. new territories kept getting split off. And they were essentially Fran still Franco-American parishes, but it diluted the power of the single parish. And you see some places where, you know, some of the commentary about this, they say, well, you know, the Diocese of Reno in Nevada has 10,000 people as well. And, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe there could be like a new diocese in Lewiston. And, you know, maybe we should have a bishop here instead of in Portland. And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> clearly that probably did not make the bishop in Portland particularly happy. Um, so there's a lot of there's kind of some rivalry and tension that sort of um, comes out there as well. But I think that sort of just in general, that question of sort of the connection to the church is a really interesting one. I mean, it is like a, you see this in Quebec, obviously, and in the history of Quebec, that the um, that the church plays such a big role in sort of everyday life there. And I think it's true for a lot of French Canadian immigrants um, to Maine as well. Um, but I think, you know, the when you talk to people today, there's often kind of like a more complex uh, and complicated sort of like history there. Um, and so, you know, pe people, individuals all have different relationships to the church, obviously. But um, it is interesting to see sort of just how, how tied up they are originally and how that's kind of changed today. Sure. And I'm assuming that a lot of these parishes had schools attached? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the um, there were a whole number of different schools in Lewiston. They built... Um, I mean, you see this in most communities actually in Maine that the um, originally the a lot of the time the Franco-Americans have um, sort of there are some schools that are established that are um, maybe just sort of slightly informal schools. Um, so like, you know, sometimes they're even like housed within the mill buildings, um, the textile mills. Um, mm -hmm. The company will like sponsor a school there for the kids. But uh, what you see in Lewiston is when the it's, especially when the Dominicans take over the parish, they establish a whole series of different schools. So they have a whole bunch of elementary schools um, attached to the different parishes, but there's also a high school there. And you even see places, so in Biddeford, um, they establish, they even establish a college, St. Joseph's College, which is now part of the University of New England. There's a whole series of sort of education is a big piece of that as well. And it's partly, you know, it's that combination of both keeping alive the language and also keeping alive the faith. Um, and those things are sort of seen as being pretty integral, I think, for a long time. Oh, absolutely. And I'm curious because I know my folks, when they went to school here in Manchester, went to school half the day in English, half the day in French. Mm. How long did that kind of thing last in Lewiston before that started being phased out? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think I hear people saying, you know, that you sort of have that mixture of French and English um, right through maybe until like the 1940s, 1950s. Uh, I mean, I know I've heard some folks say that the elementary level education 
especially had a lot of French in it because a lot of kids would go out there sort of with French as their first language still. Sure. Uh, even in like the late 40s, early 50s. Um, I mean, one of the things you saw here in Maine, and I think, I'm not sure if it was the case in New Hampshire as well, but it wouldn't surprise me that um, a lot of states around the World War One era, about 1920 or so, um, passed these laws to uh, make uh, speaking foreign languages in, for, in public school um, prohibited. Right. Yeah. So you see that in Maine in 1919, they say that you know the only you can only you have to speak English unless it's in a foreign language setting. So at least in public schools in Maine, a lot of kids would be punished for um, speaking English, uh, speaking French, like in the classroom or in the playground. And so the the parish schools are kind of a way that they get around that because they don't have to follow the same rules as the um, as the public schools did. Um, but it shows you this real divide again in the community sure. between those places like Lewiston when there are a whole bunch of parish schools that kids can attend basically for free or for a little cost because the you know, church is subsidizing them. Um, but then you've also got um, folks who grew up in communities without a parish school uh, and they're sort of like forced to assimilate much more quickly. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I recently was tuned in to a documentary, thanks to Patrick Lacroix when he was on our show. Mm. He told us about this documentary that we had to check out called The Home Road, which I did, and I mm. saw you all over this documentary. <laughs> now, now, how did you get involved in this project? <laughs> um, so I think uh, the um, I think I first got involved with that just with the the filmmaker had approached me. Uh, it's a great story. Um, at uh, one of the gatherings that the University of Maine hosts um, called, um, and I think they call them rassemblements or sort of get-togethers of, um, they have sort of writers and artists and they sort of, we all sort of share some of the different projects that we're working on. Uh, and I believe um, the person who made the film there was attending at one of those and um, just sort of had asked me some questions sort of based on some of the stuff actually that I put in my blog because, you know, it's a cross-border story and I'd written a few things about the the nature of the US-Canadian border in the early period, which is sort of pretty informal. Um, and so that was just kind of how we got connected. So it was um, kind of just a, a lucky lucky happenstance, but it's a pretty cool story. And um, it was pretty uh, pretty fun to hear all the details that they were able to research. Yeah, now, were you familiar with the story at all? Uh, I did not, no, I didn't know anything yeah. about it until sort of she had <laughs> laid it out to me and then started asking me all these different questions about sort of the greater historical context, so. Sure. So you you got to fill it at everybody about the eastern townships of Quebec. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> All right, cool. Now, an article that you wrote fairly recently got passed around our French-Canadian descended Facebook in social media circles uh, was about kind of the almost the French-Canadian legacy of Governor LePage up in Maine. Um, I don't really want to get into his politics necessarily. I'm curious, first of all, why did it take so long to get a French-Canadian governor of Maine, considering the population? Mm, I mean, that's a, good, that's a good question. I mean, I think there are, there are sort of like a couple of things that I've heard. I mean, one is sort of just the general kind of stuff that we've alluded to. You know, the fact that we know that um, a lot of folks are, um, there's a lot of discrimination against French Canadians in Maine and sort of a lot of attempts to make it harder for, for French-Canadian immigrants to vote, let alone, you know, run for office. And so, you know, the, it's the, kind of the way that you see it, a lot of, um, you know, ethnic minority communities are sort of, kept out of power for a long time. Um, so there's sort of, there's, there's part of that where there's sort of just simple discrimination. Uh, I mean, I think some of the, something else that people have pointed to that sort of rings true for me as well is just, there's also not necessarily a whole amount of like unified identity between different French Canadian communities in Maine. Um, and that's sort of traditionally been kind of a barrier to sort of bigger action sometimes. So 
Um, I think you have maybe like a little more of that now. I mean, Maine is Maine, and it's probably similar in New Hampshire. Is still a place where people have very strong local identities about like sure. which town they live in, you know, and everyone everyone's the same. Absolutely. You know, the, next, the next town over is like your biggest rival and you know, <laughs> worst people ever, um, even though they live next door to you. But um, so, but I think that's also true for like the French Canadian communities here, right? So the Franco Americans in Maine, you know, you had uh, you see communities like you know Lewiston or Biddeford or Waterville all have you know they elect folks to city council, they even elect folks to the state legislature, but sort of, I think, trying to organize a statewide office effort, like running for governor or running for a congressperson, I think is like something that eluded them a little bit, partly because there wasn't so much, uh, you know, connection between those different communities and not so much coordination. So that probably is also part of the holding back, um, in addition to the fact that there's just sort of this general era of discrimination, sort of trying to get the buy-in from the general party, um, you know, the party machines to try and, you know, get the nomination for that proved to be difficult. So there were definitely some Franco-Americans who ran for different um, different offices at different times. But um, Mike Michu was the first sort of um, open Franco-American to be elected to Congress in the 1990s. And then um, Paul LePage in 2010 was the first to serve as governor. Now, and you mentioned that LePage was not shy about his French-Canadian, Franco-American background when mm. he decided to run. Like, I mean, I guess maybe this is a local politics question, but is it good politics now to be Franco-American? Is this is that a, an issue that you think politicians in Maine are going to point to more often? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question because I think the um, you see some political scientists in Maine sort of, and there's a couple in particular. Uh, Christian Potholm is one who, who teaches a class at Bowdoin College who's written kind of extensively on some of this stuff and I think has worked as a campaign consultant in the past. But talk about sort of Franco-Americans as being sort of a key swing group in Maine and they sort of share a lot of things in common with some of the groups that, you know, um, people think of as being sort of like the... Um, I think the term they even sometimes use for it is sort of ethnic Democrats or groups from, or white ethnic populations, you know, groups like Italian Americans or Irish Americans that had a traditionally strong democratic focus, but also a sort of like socially kind of conservative more than, you know, some other groups. And so anyway, so like at least there's at least one school of political thought which says that, you know, like these are a really key swing constituency and like winning them over is sort of really critical. And definitely I think in uh, LePage's campaign, you saw this, I mean, I think you've seen this a little bit so I think Mike Michoud maybe did it a little bit. And then his successor, who was also a Franco-American uh, for Congress, Bruce Poliquin, um, he also did a fair amount of campaigning where he, you know, he would show up at Franco-American festivals and had some signs that in French and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, I don't know whether it's something that is going to quite be as, you know, quite be as keen as what you see in national politics, where you talk about people sort of campaigning for the African-American vote. Yeah, or exactly. Latino vote. Right, right, right. Um, it's still a little way from that, I think. But I think it's interesting that definitely folks are, you know, where candidates have those connections, they're, they're using them. And they're also like certainly not hiding them, which I think they would have done at one point in the past. So, I mean, people talk about Margaret Chase Smith, who was a famous senator from Maine, a congresswoman and then a senator, and that she has a Franco-American background. But as far as I can tell, like she never really spoke publicly about that um and so that's a really interesting sort of different case about how that wasn't something that she sort of played up as part of her background and seems to more or less have sort of kept under wraps so it's very different now <laughs> at least we're at reached the point where you you don't have to keep a french canadian background under wraps right, that's right. Not, exactly. that sounds yeah. like a positive all right cool out of curiosity as we're kind of winding down mm -hmm. what's next Do we get a preview of coming attraction what, what are you working on now what's the next project <laughs> um, I mean, it's uh, the blog will probably keep uh, chugging along with all kinds of dipping into all kinds of different things. Um, I mean, I've been working a lot on and I did this for like 
the last couple of years of digging up sort of letters from Franco-Americans who served in the First World War and um, trying to think, I haven't quite decided sort of what to do with some of those yet. I've got sort of about 100,000 words worth of letters that have been um, wow. transcribed. Uh, not all of them Franco-Americans, but a good chunk of them. Um, and so I may be working on something to, some way to sort of make use of those. Um, but those are kind of interesting because they show you a lot of the like, you know, just a lot of these themes of sort of what it means to what your kind of identity is with it. And then also, of course, whether you're French Canadian or American or Franco-American, something in between. And then the um, and then, of course, a lot of these folks who are serving in the U.S. Army are then serving in France. And so they get sort of this connection with their homeland or sort of ancestral homeland again, uh, which is kind of interesting sometimes. So, yeah, some interesting stuff in there. But um, <laughs> I'm always researching more than I can actually do. Anything, so. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. All right. We've been talking to James Mile again behind the Parlez-vous American blog. Local historian knows a ton of stuff. Super interesting. If you're interested in this podcast, this is the type of blog you definitely need to be checking out. So we're going to post where you can reach this blog on our social media sites. Uh, James, thank you very much for, uh, for talking to us. Really do appreciate it and really hope you come back as you publish a whole bunch of new stuff. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Jesse. Anytime. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode. This program is recorded at the Conquer TV Podcasting Studio. The views and opinions expressed during this podcast are not necessarily those of Conquer TV. The producer is solely responsible for its content.